0: Welcome to Power Problems. I'm John Glazer. My guest today is Jennifer Kavanaugh, Senior Fellow in the American Statecraft Program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Jennifer, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: You co-authored a recent piece in Foreign Affairs, essentially warning that the violence and instability in the Middle East following the October 7th attack and Israel's subsequent war on Gaza risks further entangling the United States. Into a region that it was supposed to have retrenched from a while ago. Before we get into that main argument, can you just start by detailing how the U.S. responded to these events in terms of its military and economic measures? What did the Biden administration decide to do in response, and what was the security rationale?
1: The first response was to come immediately to Israel's aid to provide them as much security assistance as they expressed the need for. Uh, In fact, uh, planes were landing with security assistance and military aid to Israel on October 8th, um, less than a, di- you know, a day later. Um, and then the second piece of that response was to surge uh, U.S. forces into the region um, to try to, number one, show support for Israel, as well as to prevent the spread of the conflict to a more regional conflict. So that was the rationale behind it. In terms of what was actually sent forward, um, you know, within about a week, um, we had two carrier strike groups um, in the region, along with um, an increase in um, fighter aircraft, um, as well as support aircraft. Um, An additional 1,200 U.S. forces were sent, mostly along with um, Patriot battalions um, set for air defense, uh, mostly to protect U.S. forces. Um, in the region, in some of our partner countries, um, like Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, UAE, and a Thad battalion was sent, and a nuclear-powered uh, submarine um, was also in the region. Um, and that's what we know about, right? So there may be uh, other um, aspects of uh, other force presence that were sent forward. So it's a pretty sizable response and a pretty immediate response. Um, which, if you contrast that with the way the United States responded to the war in Ukraine, which has been um, very incremental, very deliberative, uh, it looks very different um, than the way the United States responded in the Middle East.
0: There's another difference as well, because and you sort of glancingly mentioned it there, but for example, in the paper, in the piece you write, "quote the seeming unconditional arms transfers to Israel have been veiled in secrecy." What do you mean by that?
1: Well, not all that much is known about the types of assistance that we the United States has provided to Israel. Uh, again, that's very different than in the case of Ukraine, where the State Department put out detailed releases uh, of the specific weapon systems that were sent and how much money it amounted to. Uh, in the case of Israel, we know that aid has been provided, but what's actually included in that aid only comes out in little drips. And we know that the White House has been trying to get additional permissions to provide uh, more uh, assistance without the typical safeguards and um, congressional approvals that often go along with um, security assistance to any partner. Uh, so, there does seem to be an effort to both keep what's being provided a secret, both in terms of quantity and type, and to ease the transfer to make it um, quicker and subject to less oversight.
0: Well, that's encouraging. Um, you write that this response is indicative of the U.S.'s, quote, habitual security-first approach to the Middle East, which has proved costly. And you say further that the Biden administration has not signaled an interest in acknowledging the failures of the current strategy or adjusting it or updating it. Can you expand on that point?
1: Well, the United States has always had a very security-heavy approach to the Middle East, um, I in general, the United States has a very security-heavy approach to foreign policy. We tend to turn first to uh, military power, whether it's a show of force or a threat of force, um, rather than using other types of up met- techniques. But it's especially pronounced in the Middle East, and it's not just the Biden administration. It obviously goes back, uh, you know, well before that, back into the Cold War, where um, the, United Mil- the United States military was um, very present and trying to keep. Um, regimes rather leaning towards the Soviet Union Um, and certainly you see it in the past um, two decades uh, where the United States has been involved in extensive uh, long-running wars Uh, and there was an effort rhetorically or there has been an effort rhetorically to pull U.S. forces out or to um, pivot away from the Middle East and certainly the security presence in the region is significantly lower than it was at the height of the Iraq war. Um, but the United States s- still has 30 to forty thousand troops in the region even before October 7th, uh, a lo- spread across dozens of bases. Um, we have uh, fighter jets, um, other types of airplanes, um, warships. Uh, so the region is still, of a wash in U.S. military forces and U.S. military presence. So any sort of notion that the U.S. has pivoted away or is no longer involved or has retrenched is really a fiction. Uh, and the Biden administration has made no effort to change that. There was a posture review that happened right at the beginning of his term, which was supposed to help realign U.S. security commitments um, in uh, to better match what our the priorities and in U.S. interests, um, you know, Asia um, and Europe, uh, but the posture review happened and no real posture changes occurred. Um, so there wasn't again any real change.
0: Why do you think that is? Sorry to interrupt, but why? Why do you? What are the reasons for that? You think?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. <laughs> um, I mean, first of all, it's very difficult. It has been very difficult historically for the United States to like downscale. We're, the United States is very good at sending forces places and spend identifying new candidates for security assistance, but very bad at deciding that that presence is no longer needed someplace or the security assistance program can end. Um, So, there's a little bit of inertia. Once something starts, you don't want to pull it out because if you pull it out, does that show the U.S. is no longer credible? (laughs) Or uh, how do we know when it's done? Or if we pull forces out, is that leaving a vacuum that China could fill? So, there's a little bit of this inertia piece, but I also think um, that military power is the way the United States has typically projected influence. Um, it is sort of the key to maintaining the United States as the dominant preeminent power. It is the um, like underlying guarantor of the uh, security architecture that the U.S. set up after the end of World War II, which has been very beneficial for the United States in a number of ways. Um, And it is sort of, again, the guarantor of this, you know, what some people call the rules-based order. Um, Obviously, there are other pieces of that, there are institutions, but the military and military presence is sort of a key component of that preeminence. So any pulling back of that preeminence um, for some um, policymakers is a statement that the U.S. is no longer um, able to maintain that level of global dominance, which I think actually is an accurate reflection of the new world order that we live in, in which there are resource constraints and we do face near-peer competitors and we do have to make choices and, and set priorities. But there's still a gap between the realization of that, which um, is growing in the foreign policy community, uh, and the actual implementation of a strategic change.
0: So one of the things you talked about there was the signals we may or may not be sending to you know, our partners and allies in the regions and so on uh, by kind of um, talking about drawing down. And I want to ask you about that because uh, I think you say basically that militarily, the United States should draw down from the region substantially, if not completely, but that Washington should invest, you say, quote, in building the capabilities and resilience of its regional partners. And you kind of argue that this kind of two-pronged approach Where we ultimately draw down, but we've got to build them up a bit militarily as we fall back so that they can do stuff on their own. Um, And I guess I want to ask you about why we need to do that second prong. I mean, can't we just draw down? You know, like I try not to be too cynical, but when I hear investing in capabilities and resilience, it sort of sounds like Pentagon speak for keeping as many customers of our military procurements as possible.
1: Well, I don't think that's what uh, Fred and I int- uh, meant by, uh, by the argument. So let me elaborate a little bit. Um, I think our point was definitely that arms sales probably should not be the centerpiece or definitely should not be the centerpiece of the way the United States continues to engage with the region. And that is what the United States has fallen back on, especially with p- partners in the Gulf. Um, the, the arms sales and the training assistance missions is the core of our engagement uh, in those countries in a lot of ways. Um, and we've sold, at this point, billions of dollars of military equipment to these countries, yet they're still not able to defend themselves uh, effectively. So the question is, why not? Uh, why, with all of this years of military assistance and military training from the United States, are they still incapable of, um, you know, defending their own borders? And so I think our recommendation is really to fo- address that, like, why not question, and figure out what's the missing piece. And so, my observation um, from my work on security systems, more generally, is that one impediment to self sufficiency is that a lot of times U.S. training focuses on interoperability. How can we get these partners and allies to plug into our operations or to support our operations? Mm. But that then isn't that's not self sufficiency. And so, I think what we in, what what we are trying to convey is this idea that. We should be training them for self-sufficiency and self-defense, not for interoperability. Interoperability is important for some countries that we actually think we're going to fight alongside. But for these countries, the goal should be to make them self-sufficient and better able to work together to deal with regional security challenges. Um, You see that a little bit now with the uh, upsurge of attacks in the Red Sea um, on on shipping from the Iranian-backed militias where the U.S. is the one who's trying to rally a coalition to uh, deal with this threat. And yes, it's an international problem because these are international waterways. So the U.S. might need to be involved. But really, this is a case where I would see the maritime cooperation of those countries in the region be, that should be the centerpiece of a response to this challenge, not the United States building a coalition of its allies from other regions. And so I think that's the shift that needs to be made, but it's a little bit of an uncomfortable shift for some in the U.S. war policy and military communities because it would mean the U.S. doing less. You know, this is a case where I think less is more um, for the United States, but the military mentality and the way we the United States has typically approached these problems is like more is more. <laughs> so it's a little bit of a, of a shift there, but I think that's what we were trying to get at with that recommendation
0: you identify three risk areas that the Biden administration should address. Escalation, backlash, and overstretch. And I want to take each of them in turn. So starting with escalation, you point out that even though U.S. deployments following October 7th were intended to prevent a wider war, quote, it seems equally likely the surge in U.S. forces could end up triggering an escalatory spiral rather than preventing one. Explain that.
1: Well, the forces that are most at risk from these uh, attacks by Iranian-backed militias are the small presence that the U.S. has in Iraq and in Syria. Um, it's a total of about 3,500 troops, uh, I about 900 in Syria and 2,500 in Iraq. Um, and they're in small groups, uh, uh, so they're you know, not, not even all in one place, at least in Iraq. Um, and so they're very vulnerable um, because they don't have a lot of forces. They don't have a lot of firepower. They don't have a lot of air defense. Um, and so they're kind of left there, um, and they're very appealing targets to uh, a militia that might be looking for, for for U.S. targets. And the U.S. response has been to use airstrikes against the you know militia arms supplies and a um, certain other militia targets, um, but they basically had no effect in terms of deterrence. Um, the attacks keep happening, and like the response has been to put more forces in to protect the forces that are vulnerable. But that's a very um, uh, circular logic there. If you have to keep deploying more forces to protect the forces that you already have, it doesn't suggest a very um, stable model um, for what you're trying to accomplish. And so we've kind of degenerated now into this situation where you have, you know, tit-for-tat attacks almost between the United States and these Iranian-backed militias, neither one doing enough to cause major damage, right? The U.S. has had, um, they've had certainly had injuries, few fatalities. There's one person who died, I think, of a heart condition. Um, the United States has inflicted some punishment, but not that much, um, and so it just keeps going. But that's a very dangerous situation, especially given the broader context of the Middle East. Um, and you have two actors in which um, who are um, you know very well armed, um, and uh, red lines are very unclear. Like at what point does an Iranian-backed attack become too much and trigger a major response, or at what point does a U.S. response pull Iran or Hezbollah into um, a, like a broader regional war? So the risks of miscalculation are very high. Um, the other way it contributes to escalation is just you know the more U.S. forces as we continue to put more troops, it gives um, Iran a rationale for having its proxy forces continue to arm and for it to continue to arm. And if everybody's arming, um, it does not um, bode well for regional stability uh, you know, in the near term or the longer term.
0: This wasn't an explicit part of your piece, as I remember, but I wonder what you think of the way in which the diplomatic posture that the United States has had towards Israel is kind of prolonging things and creating more risk. Because for example, we vetoed a UN resolution to have a ceasefire. Presumably a ceasefire would calm things in the region, make an Iranian attack less likely and a Hezbollah attack less likely and so on. And the United States won't do this. It seems like there are, are plenty of things we could do to ease and mitigate the situation. And we're doing the opposite things.
1: I think I think that's true. Um, Certainly the attacks uh, slowed down a lot or even stopped during the the uh, pause that they had at the end of last month. Um, So so certainly there does seem to be some connection there. Uh, I think, you know, the Biden administration got itself into a tough place because it started off with this unconditional support to Israel that the United States would provide Israel whatever it needed, um, and that Israel had an absolute right to self-defense. And now it sees the broader consequences of that in terms of the way it's played out in Gaza and in the way that's rippled across the region. Um, And it's hard to, but it's hard to walk that commitment back, given the U.S.-Israel relationship and given domestic politics. Um, In addition, I think, you know, the immediate rush to surge forces into the region which I, you know, we we discussed a little bit is um, very characteristic of sort of this U.S. Um, leaning heavily on military power. Um, it doesn't have a lot of other options in the Middle East, right? We didn't have most of the diplomats in the key countries weren't actually ambassadors weren't in their posts. We still have a big economic presence, but it's been declining um, over the recent years. So we don't have a lot of other tools, um, and so we lean on that one. But there's There's tension there between, you know, the goals that we had um, when the mission set out and how it's played out, which I think points to a broader point that Fred and I were hoping to make in this article, which is that the second and third order consequences of the decisions made in the early days to back Israel unconditionally, to send security assistance to flood, you know, the region with arms and U.S. troops and other types of hardware, um, they weren't thought through before the move was made. And now you have to deal with those consequences.
0: And with respect to the risk of backlash, you cite the worsening humanitarian crisis in Gaza, the waves of anti-Americanism sweeping across the Arab world, and the very real divergence between Arab governments in Washington over Israel's prosecution of its campaign um, and, and the risk that that erodes U.S.-Arab security cooperation, uh, among other things. Expand on the prospect that things can kind of backlash against us in w- with our posture.
1: Yeah, so I, mean, I think we've already seen this play out uh, or we're watching it play out in real time. I um, mean, the idea is that, you know, by flooding the, the region with um, U.S. forces and hardware and backing Israel unconditionally, the U.S. has uh, tied itself very closely to the Israeli response intentionally or unintentionally. Uh, and as a result, people in the region uh, tie um, Israel's response to the United States and blame what they don't like about Israel's response on the United States. Uh, so the two become conflated. And so you've seen protests with uh, people uh, demanding that their governments get the U.S. troops out. Um, and the more U.S. troops that are there, the worse that becomes, because it just becomes a visual and physical reminder that the U.S. is in the region uh, and an easy target for blame uh, for the way things are unfolding um, um, in Gaza. Um, there's been some really interesting public opinion polling. Um done that looking both at before and after October 7th, um, that shows that, you know, in the wake of October 7th, favorability of the United States went way down. But so interestingly did the favorability of some of our um, Arab partners. Um, And the country that got the biggest favorability boost was Iran. Um, And so once again, I think you see a case where the U.S. activity in the region ends up benefiting um, our adversaries in the way that it shifts the power balance. So I think you see already evidence that the U.S. response has triggered that backlash. The question in my mind, and I don't think we have an answer yet, is how long does it last and what are the long-term consequences? It could be something that peters out. It could be, and there's some indication of this from Jake Sullivan's visit um, in the region right now and some of the statements that came out um, from others in the region about continuing to discuss Arab-Israeli normalization, that this is a blip and that eventually things stabilize. And even as the conflict goes on, um, you know, the U.S. and relations with these countries returns to normal. But it could be something that spirals out of control. Um, even authoritarian countries can't control these things sometimes. And then that then puts pressure on the U.S. relationships with these countries. And regardless of how it plays out at sort of the diplomatic level, it creates force protection challenges for the United States, um, for their personnel in the region. They may not be able to move around as freely. They may not be able to conduct the same exercise that they were planning to. They may have to invest time and energy in um, better protecting their bases. We've already seen that with the deployments of air defense. So it sucks up resources, both time and actual physical resources. Uh, So it has real implications.
0: And then finally about overstretch, which is is largely about accommodating a still very ambitious strategy, but one that shifts in focus to the Asia-Pacific region, something we've proved rather sluggish at achieving, as we kind of mentioned at the beginning. Uh, I think there are good reasons for the U.S. to retrench from the Middle East, regardless of. Um, US foreign policy ambitions in other regions. But the really sexy argument to make in policy circles these days is that strategy is about prioritization and finite resources and should be devoted to an area of greater strategic importance, which you know totally makes sense. That bolsters the case for many in DC. Although I don't like it nearly as much as simply saying, yes, let's downsize uh, U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East and reduce the overall budget instead of trying to make up the difference with new investments elsewhere. But um, and that, by the way, I think that that is itself the tendency indicative of towards overstretch that we're talking about. But um, talk about the problem of overstretch. What is overstretch? How should we think about it with respect to our lingering presence in the Middle East?
1: Well, I don't disagree with you that there are reasons to downsize U.S. presence in the Middle East regardless, because the current level of presence far exceeds the interests that we still have in the region. And to be clear, we do still have some interest in the region. We do benefit from having stable oil prices and we benefit from having, um, you know, Israel be secure. Um, we benefit from having access to international waters in the region. So like there are U.S. does have interests. It's just those interests. Uh, and, you know, the threat that Iran poses aren't great enough to warrant, you know, 45,000 troops in the region, as well as all the other things that we've deployed there. Um, so there are reasons to downsize regardless. Um, but I think the 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 challenge that we face from China um, in the Indo-Pacific theater and the commitments that we've made, uh, wisely or unwisely, to, um, you know, allies and partners across the region Um means that we have to be even, or the means that the United States has to be even more vigilant about allocation of resources. Um, And there are a number of reasons why the Indo-Pacific theater deserves higher priority than, uh, you know, than the Middle East. Number one, China is a much um, greater threat, um, both militarily and more generally to U.S. interests than Iran. Number two, the United States has a lot more interest in Asia than it does in the Middle East, economic, uh, as well as uh, uh, diplomatic and political. Um, We have a lot more allies, a lot of the centerpiece of U.S. trade. Um, Waterways in the region are incredibly important for a number of reasons. So it makes sense to prioritize the Asia Pacific region over the Middle East. By deploying so many forces forward to the Middle East, you create a number of challenges in terms of effectively resourcing that asia pacific mission um number one uh, a lot of the capabilities that have been deployed to the middle east and that would be needed if the conflict were to spiral out of control in the middle east to become a regional war are exactly the ones that you would want in the asia pacific theater if there were a crisis and they're already in short supply so high-end air defense like patriot battalion you need those uh and Uh, In the Indo-Pacific, and if you have eight or however many of them deployed um, in the Middle East, you can't use them there. Um, Long-range fires, we already have very low stocks of those. Um, And uh, most Indo-Pacific scenarios, planning suggests that the United States would burn through those incredibly quickly. So any long-range precision fires that you would expend in the Middle East um, would then you know, compromise the ability of the United States military to prosecute a war in Asia. And a lot of the capabilities that we, you know, as we provide more and more aid to Israel, um, those are things that, you know, might be useful uh, for Taiwan, which is another partner that the United States has committed to arm and has done very little to get arms into their hands. Like They have a $19 billion backlog. So there's that there's that narrow issue of like the fungibility of these things you can't have them in both places at both, at the same time then the secondary issue is like over time just constant lo- large deployments of military force wear down the force equipment breaks personnel get burnout uh training and readiness uh drops because you can't do right re- your, your regular routine training and so in all these ways you're degrading the force that you might have to deploy to uh, to a crisis in Asia um, and that sort of becomes a long-term risk if these forces stay deployed and so those two elements of overstretch uh, you know are, wor- are, are worsened by the way in which the United States has responded to the crisis in the Middle East which is to lean on exactly the resources and bandwidth that you would need if there were a crisis in Asia that the United States decided to respond to.
0: I asked you a little bit about inertia before, um, but I want to bring it up again because it's not just that we're having a hard time as a country drawing down from the Middle East. We've drawn up in in Asia a little bit. We've invested more in there, but making this switch, it seems to me like there's a strategic argument alone that we should just draw down from the Middle East and go uh, deal with bigger problems in Asia. Um, that doesn't that's not persuasive enough to move the ship of state, right, to actually make those changes. So then people say, well, we have finite resources, and here are the events, and it's a changing world, and we're really, really going to be pressed in, in Asia and not so much in the Middle East. That doesn't you know, put a fire under anyone's butt. And then we're in a crisis situation where the, the chances that we're drawn in to another quagmire or some kind of disaster in the Middle East increases right? And we have China kind of getting stronger. And even that is not jolting enough to Washington to make a serious change that most people, I think, that really are rigorous and serious and look at this think needs to happen. So can you just speculate a little bit about like how, how can we get out of that? I mean, what is going to result in change if not uh, the current situation?
1: Well, I mean, some the million-dollar question right there. <laughs> I, I think there are a number of impediments that slow down this process of actually executing a pivot to Asia. Um, you know, the first set are sort of like physical constraints. If we want to increase posture in Asia, where are we going to put it? Um, we don't have access in very many places. We have bases in Japan, bases in Korea, I uh, base in Guam, uh, you know, those places don't have a lot of extra capacity. It's not like they have uh, a lot of extra space for more people. So you'd actually have to increase your basing structure to actually have a larger forward presence in the region. And there are some who argue that we should do that. But my question is, you know, what country is signing up for, what country in the Indo-Pacific region is signing up to become the next host of U.S. bases? Uh, so that seems like a tough sell um, in the current environment. Most countries in the region don't want to choose sides. They they may provide the U.S. with some peacetime access, like the Philippines has opened up more basing access, and um, the United States has some basing access in Singapore and um, Australia. But these are places where the United States is able to put small small groups of forces, not a major change in U.S. posture. Um, the, the alternative would be to rely mostly on naval presence to so surge a lot of naval presence where you don't need access permissions as much. you need to have ports that they could go to, but you could probably manage that. And you could use them as a float basis. The U.S. has like a float base capabilities. So you could have aircraft in the region, aircraft carriers. Um, but even that I think is challenging because the U.S. has limited naval capacity And so the question is sort of what do you you surge into the region and and where? Um, You know, there's been a lot of press about the limitations of the U.S. shipbuilding um, industrial base and its ability to create a big enough Navy that would be able to sustain like a large forward naval presence in the region. Um, And then you have the like internal DOD challenges in terms of shifting money. If we're going to pivot to the Asia-Pacific region, it probably means a reallocation of money away from the Army and towards the Navy and the Air Force. I'm not saying that the Army plays no role in, a Pacific, in the Pacific theater or in an Indo-Pacific scenario because I don't think that's true. I think they have a role, but it's definitely a smaller role than they would have had in the, in the Middle East or in Europe. So you have to pivot those resources, but there's a ton of institutional obstacles to that kind of change. And getting straight sure, to making sure you have the right forces to actually deploy there. It's not like you take the forces in the Middle East uh, or Europe and like move them to the Pacific. It's different forces that you need. And then there's the challenge of the, the difficulty of calibrating deterrence versus escalation. you know how much forward presence can the. US put forward to signal its commitment to prepare for a possible war fight without actually triggering the conflict? That is trying to prevent, and so we talked a little bit about this in the Middle East context of the ways in which U.S. forward presence can contribute to escalation. The same is true in the Pacific theater. If you're China and you suddenly see the U.S. massively increase its forward presence and start deploying all sorts of capabilities in the region, does that cause you know you you know does that cause uh, President Xi or his military commanders to make different choices? Or to escalate further, so I think those are all the factors that are that go into this type of decision, and so pr- progress is just glacial as you try to navigate like the strategic questions, the turns questions, the force structure questions, and the question of how you deal with allies and partners.
0: Yeah, I guess there's also a lot of political risk to such a big change, and voters aren't really. Voters don't drive change in foreign policy, it seems, you know. So the reason the politics might not have pushed far enough on this is uh, uh, that might be why as well. Um, You published another piece in Foreign Affairs, um, co-authored, where you talk about why force fails. Um, You talk about the strong bias in Washington that we've kind of been talking about in favor of military intervention and the immediate pressures that presidents face to intervene in the event of some foreign crisis and you try to look at all the data from us interventions uh, and to show about success and failure you know how often are, are these uh, worthwhile in, in us interests and you find that it often you know military intervention often fails and that's a trend that seems to be increasing over time if i read that right and those findings seem broadly consistent with some others, I had uh, Monica Toft and Sadita Kushi on, and they've done some similar work trying to look at U.S. interventions in the aggregate. Um, anything you want to say about this work, and perhaps specifically what the takeaways for policymakers are?
1: Yeah, I think you did a good job characterizing it. I mean, we did find that U.S. military inventions often fail to accomplish their objectives, and that in a lot of cases where the U.S. could have intervened, uh, and we, you know, we had a specific way of identifying. Um, you know, crises and other types of events that were similar to um, cases where the US did intervene, but where there was no intervention. That in a lot of cases where the US chose to do nothing, things ended up working out okay in the end. Um, and the US interests were sort of no worse off. Um, so there's a question of, you know, how useful are these military interventions at all? Um, it's true that the. Um, the lack of success or failures become more common over time, but a part of that is how the U.S. has defined its goals. Um, it's tended to expand the goals of those military interventions to become things that are basically unattainable by military by military means alone. Um, you know, nation building you can't accomplish a nation building with just the military. Like that requires a political strategy and economic strategy military personnel aren't trained for a lot of the tasks that they're asked to uh, execute in military interventions. And so we shouldn't be surprised, um, you know, when they come up for, um, short. I think what we found in terms of like, you know, the key takeaways, you know, things that are most successful tend to be immediate to a crisis, um, relatively small in size and short, um, and short in duration. So very narrow goals, targeted missions that are military military tasks, um, those tend to be the most successful. Um, the biggest, most costly failures tend to be the things that are like large and long. And that doesn't mean that the U.S. should never do large interventions, but it does mean that if there's a problem that seems like it's going to require like a large and lengthy um, intervention, those should be subject to additional scrutiny uh, and careful thinking about like, is this really in the US interests? Is there a, a more limited way we can tackle this problem? Do we have the intelligence and information we need to do this correctly? Um, and then, the, I guess, the final key point is that we found that the only cases where the US was really able to like move the needle when it intervened is when. U.S. forces can decisively shift the balance of power on the ground. Um, and so that could mean that you, you know, that could be a rationale for using a large force, but for a very short time. But if if you can't shift the balance of power on the ground, the U.S. tended to fail. Um, and I think that says something about both the types of situations where the U.S. chooses to intervene and, um, you know, how, how it does it when it makes that choice uh so yeah so i think it raises a number of, of questions about the ways in which policymakers have tended to use military force and suggests a much more narrow set of uh, circumstances in which the use of force is legitimate so you know, we don't make the argument that the u.s should never use military intervention um, but it should definitely be something that's used as a very targeted and a piece of u.s statecraft rather than the like entirety or the first resort of U.S. statecraft.
0: As you said at the beginning, less is more, right?
1: Less is more, yes.
0: Jennifer Cavanaugh, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today.
1: Yeah, thanks so much for having me. This was a great conversation.